Good morning again. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 5 is where we are at. We've been working verse by verse. We started back up again um, a couple of Sundays ago, maybe one Sunday ago, losing track of time. Uh, but here we are in Romans chapter 5. In just a second, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, you are a good, good father, and I am a great sinner. And so we need grace that we might think deeply and speak clearly on the enormous benefits of justification by faith alone in Christ in order that we would not take it for granted, but they, um, the benefits, God, may be the occasion in our daily lives for gratitude, for humility, for security, and be foundational to how we understand you and therefore, Father, how we are to understand everyone and everything else. For Jesus' sake, we would ask this. Amen. Well, I wonder if you notice at the end of Romans 4 and at the beginning of Romans 5, Paul's change of, of pronoun to the first person plural we. Just let me give you an example. In the first half of chapter 1, he uses the pronoun I, as in I, Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In the second half, he uses the pronoun they, and he's describing the Gentile world and how they suppress God's truth, and he writes, they are without excuse. They know God, but they do not glorify God. In chapter 2, the pronoun of choice is you. And first, he's addressing the religious person who judges others. And Paul writes, you who pass judgment on others, you are condemning yourself because you do the very same thing, you. And the second part, he, he, he says, now you, and he's addressing his own people, now you who call yourself a Jew. Finally, in chapter 3, Paul uses the pronoun they, as in they, the whole world, everyone. They are held accountable to God in their sin. However, suddenly in chapter 4, things change to the first person plural we, and you see it most clearly in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we Christians have been justified through faith, we Christians have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's why I put you through those paces. Paul has spent four chapters in great detail explaining the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in that, we may be tempted on occasion to think, as others do now, and they did also in the New Testament, all right, all right, so I'm good with God. That is, that's a good thing. I'm going to heaven, perfect, wonderful. But there is this thing called life, and we still got to do it, and it can be so hard, oh, so hard to understand it and to live it. And To me, that is totally understandable. It can be, for me personally, very hard to understand life 
and to do life. Consequently, what Paul does in chapter 5 is he begins to explain the everyday forever benefits for every Christian, for we Christians who have been justified by faith in Christ. And you see, that's why Paul writes here in the first person plural, we, to remind us these benefits are not given to only, you know, like a special kind of Christian or to a Christian who's always on or to some kind of very uh, serious elite Christian or or that kind of Christian, whatever that kind of Christian is. You know, so he's a he man, he's a quiet man, introvert, extrovert, outgoing lady, quiet lady, high energy, low energy, likable person, not so likable. It doesn't matter. These benefits are a we as in for we Christians who have been justified by faith in Christ. Which, if you think about it, it's one of the reasons why doctrines understood and applied is really the Christian's meat and drink. Because it keeps us from being blown away from from every, Ephesians 4, from every wind of of hey. You know, this is the new thing God is doing. This is a brand new thing. God has upgraded things since way back then. Paul would write, no. No, actually, this is a very old doctrine God has given, and it cannot be improved upon. So the doctrine of justification comes with immediate benefits for every Christian, which, again, it can be such a relief. It can be so liberating. It can quiet the mind, especially if a person's view of Christianity is All it is is some kind of massive self-improvement project, which depends on you and I improving if we'll ever know God's promise, if we'll ever know God's love and care and righteousness. (laughs) Listen, listen carefully. In justification, everything is fine with you and God. Start there. Stay there. Rest there. And grow in holiness there. So if you would, please have a look down to your Bible in chapter 5. Because of justification by faith, we have peace with God. We, we are no longer provoking God's wrath, even in our sin. We've gained access to God. We have nothing more to answer for, so we can face God joyfully, confidently, as dearly welcomed children, co-heirs, as the Bible would say, with His Son, Jesus Christ. Also, we now stand in the grace of God. That's fixed. That's unmovable. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, forgive me, but it's like we, 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 all the way home. So the question should come. Okay, how did we become a we? Answer, chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for we have all sinned. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. However, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So you see, to live in light of the gospel right here and right now between the already of our conversion and the not yet of heaven can only be understood properly in biblical terms. And there, and this is where we would go astray. We, we cannot be the go-to on this. Right? Our feelings, especially, can't be the go-to on this. God is. We are simply the beneficiaries. God is the authority. Therefore, since Paul, under God, writes here, we are saved by divine grace, the question is not, does God care? But rather, how much does God care? And how does His care reveal itself? 
And here again in chapter 5, verse 1 and following, the benefits are overwhelming. And, and I said this last week, but it bears repeating. You can't see it as easily in the English, but in the Greek, the sense here is present possessive possession. It means these are fixed, unchanging, present, continuous, full truths, all because of God. And they benefit us. Think of it this way. We are not saved by grace only to be preserved and maintained by our own human effort. I mean, that would make a mockery of God's grace, a mockery of what God had planned in his son before there was time, before there was space, before there was anything or anyone. That somehow what God began in Christ in us, he is unwilling or unable or unfit to preserve and finish. That is profanity to the Christian. I mean, can you imagine saying, I do to your husband or to your wife at the altar? Then after you heard, I do, you, you heard goodbye, <laughs> good luck, you're on your own. I mean, that would be unthinkable. Jude chapter 1, verse 24. He, God, he is able to keep you from falling. So I was reading this week of the 18th century menace of what was called altar theology. And I think it was a subset of the holiness movement, but you might know it as the perfectionist movement. Regardless, altar theology which comes across as pretty impressive, it says, okay, look, if a person could just lay it all down, if they could just sanctify themselves, keep perfecting their thinking and living, then God would be pleased. He would be so pleased that he would bless them with all his fullness and he would hold nothing back anymore because we're being so good and you'd be justified because you're being so good, uh, similar to what you hear now, this levels of blessing uh, from God. So the better you are... um, the more God gives. That is a total denial of justification, throws it out the door, it completely ignores propitiation, and it treats the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as something that was unfinished. Loved ones, the sins we commit are the sins Christ died for. If the maintaining and the preservation of our salvation and our relationship with God depends on what the Christian does or doesn't do, then our salvation is only secure as our obedience and our faithfulness. Which, if we're going to be honest, how could that really provide security? I mean, in this view, human power has to finish what Jesus Christ began. And that is unthinkable. In justification, God will never overthrow his divine acquittal of all our sins. Think of it this way. If you went to court, were declared not guilty of something, all things being equal, you would not worry anymore if that something would come back to trial or if that something would come back to haunt you. It's the same with God in justification. Now, that does not mean we are free to sin, but it does mean that we are free from sin. It's penalty, it's power. One day, thank God, its very presence. So we don't fall in and out of grace. We can do that with people, politicians, with the public, but no, verse 2, we stand in grace. Stand in grace. Like, this is the picture I have in my mind of getting stuck in poured concrete and it dries and there you are. And the Christian says, yes, there we are forever and ever, world without end in grace. Which takes us to our first of three points. And they're pretty simple. We have, we know, and God has. We have, we know, God has. So first of all, we have. And, and these are the benefits, the grace of God and justification by faith in Jesus Christ. 
brings us. So it bears repeating. We have peace with God. God will not have a mind change or a mood swing with us. We have access to God. And that word we said was, was actually the bringing of the worshiper into the very presence of God, ushered in, complete access to God. And we find it all there is because of grace. So Jesus Christ, verse 2, opens the door. And when we get to the throne, what we find is we find no condemnation. We find no judgment. We find no vengeance. We find no anger. We find no hatred. We find no hostility. We find no debt needing to be paid back by us. However, what we do find with God is undeserved, unmerited, unending grace when we have access to God. We sing the song here, all I have is Christ. And the line, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is, is grace. And God is free to do this because of the doctrine of justification that Christ has fully paid for all our sins by his precious blood. Meaning, the relationship that we have with God is not precarious. It's not risky. Our relationship with God is not dangerous. I mean, those ideas may, may sell books, Life on the Edge with God. It's not true. It just may inflate our ego. Our relationship is safe always. It is always one of peace with God by which we have been introduced into this access with God of the state of grace from God in Christ in which we are standing in. And the end there, verse 2, we have hope, right? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that third benefit of justification, once you are a justified person, once faith has taken hold of your heart, you now perceive the things of God in a completely different way than you would in your natural state. So now the glory of God is your great pleasure. It's your delight to glorify God, to ascribe the majesty, excuse me, the weightiness and the gravity to who God is. That's what the Christian now lives for. That's what we call living. This is what the abundant life Jesus spoke of in John chapter 10. Future glory, okay, that glory and hope which is coming is now backed by the promise of daily grace, okay? Future glory coming, backed by the promise of daily grace so we will have all the grace we need right now to bring us into glory. And that takes us then to our fourth benefit of justification, suffering. Verse 3, we also rejoice in our sufferings. So at first, you might think, come again? You know, really? Really, Paul, rejoice in suffering? Because it would seem that there is nothing more unnatural to us as human beings than to enjoy suffering, to rejoice in tribulation. I mean, that seems to be something that we would seek to avoid desperately. But Paul lays down the truth. When you're a justified person, when the love of God has been poured into your hearts, when you have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are given a whole new perspective on tribulation and suffering. Now you don't see it as an exercise in futility. Now you do not see it as punishment from God. Now you do not see it as something which only takes away, but rather something which adds. And now you do not see suffering simply as, you know, God's self-improvement project which only benefits us because here paul is doing his dead level best as the holy spirit enables to tell his reader readers the comprehensive nature of what god has accomplished in us and for us in the gospel which means yeah we 
can rejoice in our suffering. Okay, why? Well, that takes us to our second point. We know, and you see it there, Paul puts it pretty plainly. We know that suffering produces, and then he gives a list. Now, the word suffering that Paul uses has the idea of, of tribulation or persecution. Flispis uh, is the Greek word, and it's a word picture here. And so you should picture in your mind olives being put in an olive press, and once the pressing comes, it begins to extract the oil, or maybe grapes in the press to extract grape juice. And so the point here is in our suffering, something will come out. God is extracting something. Something in us is removed which suffering, the pressure of of suffering can do. And so suffering here, it's not, you know, the aches and pains and worries of our earthly existence. This is not the fears and frustrations and disappointments we have, which is pretty much common to humanity, some more than others. However, here, this is pressure, okay? This pressure in order to extract is because we're Christians. It's because of the position that we take in Christ in front of a hostile world. In essence, it's persecution. So don't miss this. It's fundamental to to what we need to know this morning. God may very well use people outside the faith as the cause of our suffering to produce or increase the qualities of the faith in us. I'm going to say that again. God may very well use people outside the faith, not Christians, as the cause of our suffering to produce and increase the qualities of the faith in us. And so Jesus and Paul and Peter and James, all plain as rain, tell us from the New Testament, there are going to be occasions for the Christian in suffering. Christians, because of our standing and grace in Christ. Just listen to your Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts chapter 14, 22, Luke writes, uh, quoting here, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, for our comfort, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. Great is your reward in heaven because that's how my people in the past were treated. And he also says something for our direction. Beware when everyone speaks well of you. So for the Christian, suffering is not some strange anomaly, but it's part and parcel of authentic Christianity. Indeed, it would be more strange if there was no suffering because of the gospel in our life. So we cannot decide we're not going to suffer. We cannot think, oh yes, I can be so good that I won't suffer. Or I can do something, I can learn something, I can pray something so that I won't ever suffer. I mean, one wonders if the temptation would be to have, you know, a hearty devotional life is only because, you know, we want to check off every box so that we check off enough boxes, then suffering will never be ours. In the days of the Protestant Reformation, people would purchase religious relics. Pieces of the cross of Jesus Christ were sold. Pieces of his clothes were sold. They were told. A tiny statue which promised it brings the buyer good and and takes away all the bad. And all of it was a con. A huge con. 
They didn't have pieces of the cross or Jesus' clothes, but sails were driven by superstition, the superstition of people who were trying to avoid suffering. Now, in our day, a person not may not buy trinkets, although sadly some still do. Our day, many today buy into having a host of people telling us how we can avoid suffering, how we can get out of it, which is a terribly odd thing to teach from the Bible. Tribulation, suffering will come to us on occasion because we're called to do things and believe things and say things which other people do not do, do not believe, and do not say. Therefore, Paul writes, verse 3, we rejoice even in our sufferings, right? We rejoice in this extraction from the pressure, which begs the question, what does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? I mean, it comes off the lips pretty easy, but what does it mean in life? Well, it doesn't mean we are stoic, a kind of, you know, don't let this get to you, or you, you hang in there, just pull yourself together, or it doesn't mean that we deny the pain that we feel, or, or just be, be dishonest to God about the way we feel. So it doesn't mean we're stoic, and it doesn't mean we're masochistic. Paul's not saying that tribulation is a pleasurable experience. That, that's silly. I mean, we, we may know people who aren't happy unless they're miserable, and so something to complain about, if it's ever removed, they would have nothing to say, they would have maybe nothing to feel, and maybe have nothing to live for. So then, what does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? Well, it's unmistakably linked to, verse 3, what we know. Verse 3, because we know that suffering produces and the word no means this is something that's clearly seen, something that's exposed, it's observable. It's almost like a math equation. When this happens, then we know this will happen. And we know this from justification that what it achieved, the sufferings of Jesus Christ, was not pointless. I mean, indeed, keep your eyes on Christ. We find that the tribulation, that suffering is enormously purposeful and productive just as it was for Jesus Christ when he suffered. When Jesus Christ suffered, think, there was incalculable benefits. And to that same end for every Christian. So, so look at the sequence there. You see it. We know, first, suffering produces perseverance. Now, perseverance in the Greek is a compound word. It's, it's two words put together. Hypo, meaning under. Second, mone, meaning to remain or endure. Hypo, mone. It almost sounds like a rap group. But when you understand the word, it means you remain under the suffering. You endure it. You live in it, especially as God enables the believer to remain in it. There is a God-given purpose in suffering. Endure it. Stay there until it's done its work. Suffering produces perseverance. That's what Paul says. And, And think of this. The mind begins to grow. When you endure under the suffering, you rethink a lot of thoughts which you once trusted in. And you now may find them flimsy and useless, maybe even untrue. And when you persevere under suffering, you find out, oh, as the pressure comes, oh, I'm not as holy as I thought I was. And all those silly cliches, you know, God helps those who help themselves. They're just crushed. And the real you is being exposed. And it's uncomfortable. And it, but it's necessary and it's safe 
because we're standing, verse 2, we're standing in grace. So you see your true self. Paul says, don't run from that. Grace says, stay there. It's okay. You, you've been justified. You didn't think I knew this about you already, God would say. Stay there and let perseverance do its work. Suffering produces perseverance, endurance. Perseverance, character. And that's the third word, character. And it means proof of or proof of your genuineness. It's tested and approved. There's a roundness to the person, closeness to Christ. We've been put through the paces and we've made it. Character has been done. The character of Jesus Christ. So Korean Christians, when they had been persecuted and tempted to abandon Jesus Christ, their character would be tested and tried by the communist regime. They would say, we are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us in, into Christ. Peter, 1 Peter 2, 1, to this you were called, Christian, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, listen carefully, he stayed there. He entrusted himself to him, God, who judges justly. That's Christian character. Stay in the suffering. Let it do its work. Entrust yourself to God. Pass the test. Let the character come. Now, this is what you need to understand. This is not easy for me to preach. I do not like suffering at all. I know that I wilt easily. I don't like to be persecuted or be hounded by people as these early Christians in Rome clearly were because of my faith in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to boast about my weakness in order that Christ's power will, will rest on me. And I don't want you to be stirred here for some, you know, kind of unhealthy reason. So you want to like hero up. Because again, if all we get out of this suffering is self-improvement, then we haven't gotten even close to the heart of what Paul is trying to say. However, verse 3, this is what I know. We know there is experiential knowledge, right, of suffering, which leads to, verse 4, perseverance, we endure, which brings into being character, a Christ-centered character, giving, if you would, Philippians 1.28, conduct worthy of the gospel. But there's more, because Paul in another place writes this. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a sheer gift. God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. So this is, this is fundamental to Christian suffering. The persecution Paul was persevering through, some of which came from his own people and even from the church, he saw as God's way of enabling him to serve the church even better. Now that's mind-boggling. I mean, think this through. The very people who caused his suffering will be helped by his suffering. It will make Paul a better Paul for them. Mind-boggling. Again, if you make this only about self-improvement, you, you've shortened it immensely. 
This is filled with genuine love for Jesus Christ and genuine love for his people and genuine love for all people, including the people who are the persecutors, the ones who cause you so much pain. Paul, Paul, then no wonder Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering because our suffering brings glory to God and our suffering brings good to other people. In other words, this perseverance and character which 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 suffering grants us is just as much for other people as it is for you and I. Now, get that. If all this suffering is just simply for self-improvement, for us, you know, if you would, to strut, <laughs> that's not cool at all. Think, if Paul's suffering benefited the entire human race, and it did, if Jesus Christ's suffering benefited the entire human race, then our suffering to that same end can be in some way beneficial to a great number of people. So Stephen Neal, in his wonderful book, The History of Missions, listen to what he writes. The first 300 years of Christianity was filled with blood. It's why the church grew so rapidly. When persecution did break out, martyrdom would be attended with the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was hard and cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs, especially of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression on Roman citizens. In the early records, what we find in the Christian is a calm, dignified, well-mannered behavior, cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy towards enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering as a way appointed by the Lord to lead us and others to his heavenly kingdom. And then he closes with this. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversions of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and the death of Christians. You see, at the height of these Christian sufferings, which would be death, that was the tool that God used to see people to faith. And only a Christian, only a Christian who's been transformed, sees everything with a better eye, a Christian of perseverance, a Christian of character, would be able to say, Amen. Amen to this. Your will, oh God, is good, it is great, and it is glorious. Remember, Job, though you slay me, yet will I hope in you. You see? So William Tyndale. William Tyndale, who lived in the 16th century, could speak uh, seven languages, proficient in Hebrew and Greek. In 19, or excuse me, in 1525, he produced the first translation of the New Testament from Greek into the English language. He had to do his work in secret. He had to do it under threat of death because at that time, the king of England refused to endorse his translation work. So just picture this in your mind. For a thousand years, the only translation of the Bible in that region was in Latin. And at that time, almost no one could read it or had access to it. So the word of God then in 16th century England was basically out of reach to the common person. There's just no way. And so Tyndale said, as like a driving force to his task, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, as I live, the plowboy 
right? The common person will know his Bible. Who does that sound like? Because he was being fashioned into the image of his Savior. Uh, John 8, 28, no matter what it takes, whatever it takes, I always do what pleases the Father. That's Jesus. No matter what. Even a cross, no matter what. So Tyndale only lived to be 42 years old. In his last letter before his martyrdom to his best friend, John Frith, who was headed to the same death, listen to what he wrote. Your cause is Christ's gospel. See the character. It's been completed. Your cause is Christ's gospel. A light which must be fed with the blood of faith. This is love. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if your pain be above your strength, remember, whatever you ask in his name, he will give it to you. And our Father will either ease your pain or shorten it. And so the English Bible that we hold in our hand or have in our phones was due in large measure to the suffering of William Tyndale for the glory of God and for, for the good of others. Just like Paul, just like Jesus, and yes, just like you and I. The point of this then is suffering produces patience and patience character. And yes, character is more and more placing us into the image of Jesus Christ, driving us into Christ, more like Christ. But don't forget who Christ is. He's the one who lived for others. He died for others. He wasn't a man simply for himself. He was, he was for God, his father, and he was for others. The others who were causing him so much pain and trouble. And he did everything he needed to rescue those people, all people, from their sins through faith in his name. So the very quality we need to live life as a Christian is created by our suffering. Now, it's not the only way. Thank God it's not the only way. But it is the chief way. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Verse 4, hope. The, the expectation of what is certain. And suddenly with hope, we go full circle. We're back into the realm of verse 2. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see that? That's one of our hopes and our sufferings. That God will somehow be glorified. God is working in us. He's preparing us, yes, for future glory. But right now, the hope is for God to be glorified. And what God starts, He finishes it. So we exalt in the free grace of God. We ground ourselves, we tie ourselves to this doctrine of justification by faith. We, we, we see our suffering not as evidence of God's wrath or anger towards us. This is God expressing His love towards us and towards others, increasing our hope. And that is what we hold on to as an undeniable truth when suffering comes. God is for me in Christ. He's not angry with me. His wrath has already been poured out completely on His Son whose image He is fashioning me into. And therefore, verse 5, hope does not disappoint. Number one, we have right, all the benefits. We have all these benefits because of justification by faith. We know we know that the benefits of suffering are, are there. And finally, God has. And so, how can we be sure that hope does not bring us to shame? Which is 
the sense of the word disappointment in verse 5, right? Here it is. God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so this is important. And I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't think it would help you. That, that sentence is written in the perfect passive indicative. Now bear with me. This is what it means. It means God's love has been poured out into our hearts, Christian. And it is a completed, but a continuous action. So picture in your, ma- uh, in your mind, excuse me, uh, a glass of water that's filled, but water's still being poured in. So the glass is being filled. It's filled, but it's overflowing. God's love poured into our hearts is a completed but still a continuous action which is being acted on you with continuous and abiding results that are in a actual, tangible, fact-based reality. All right, so I'm smiling because you're like, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means you will know God's love. You will feel it. You will experience it. And you will glory in God's love. That's what Paul is saying here. This is, this is that overflowing love that God has put in our hearts. Augustine, in my deepest wound, okay, in the context of suffering, in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. It dazzled me. And the agent who is acting on you in God's love, you see it there, is the Holy Spirit. So the first mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans is in connection with the love of God, which is in connection with our suffering. And love proper will always drive us to the cross. Do you see it there? God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, because it's a continuous thought, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see that? And we have so much more to say about the love of God, but this is this is where we're going to end. There's a gentleman named James Grisham Meacham. He died in on January 1, 1937. Now, before um before he died, he was under great pressure. He was being persecuted from his colleagues at Princeton University. The Princeton Seminary at that time had essentially moved away from Orthodox Christianity. The Bible was to them just a, just like any other book. It wasn't inspired. It was, it was about God, maybe, but it was not from God. So they said. So, so Meacham, as a middle-aged man, he had to leave. And he did his dead-level best to start another school. But there was more pressure and more suffering. He was never married, and he was kind of one of those people who just worked himself to to the you know to his death so he became really ill in december 1936 and at that time he was preaching actually in bismarck north north dakota and he was all alone and he basically had pneumonia and he was in the hospital but before he died the last thing that he wrote was a telegraph to a colleague. Okay? So he's on his deathbed. And listen to what he wrote. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Stop. No hope without it. Okay? I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. 
No hope without it. So on his deathbed, Meacham was thinking of the perfect, active obedience of Christ. Whose active obedience was the sole ground of Meacham's justification and our justification. So, so theology learned in a room is a gift. But when your end comes, right? When it's the end and it's all there to find real joy in the obedience of Jesus Christ, that is glorious. And that is a result of suffering. To your Bibles, we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by this Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. If you think about it, isn't it true in some, in some amazing way that at the height of our character, right? At the height of our character, it still takes us right back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If it doesn't, and something's gone amiss. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. Father, will you please shine the light of your truth on our minds. Again and again, show us Jesus Christ in all his beauty, in all his perfection and loveliness, all his grace and compassion. Lead us daily to the cross so that we can think and contemplate in His suffering, the immensity, the greatness of His love for us. And please, God, by Your Spirit, deepen us in our understanding of these profound truths which have been set before us from Your Word. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.